Why do you love it so much? I think if you own your own business, you have to be prepared to take risks. Being a woman doesn't hold you back from achieving success. Yep, so if you're struggling, just stop and pause and, and really reflect on why am I struggling here. But I've also worked really hard and telling me it's luck, I think, just takes away some of that recognition of the hard work. One last question. Welcome to Tea with the Queen, a show where I talk with some of my favourite go-getters, inspiring and courageous women in leadership and business. I'm your host, Emma McQueen. I'm a business coach, executive coach, author and speaker. And for 20 years, I've been working with women to unlock their potential and get paid their worth while doing work they love. In her earlier years, Alison Drew Forster was an industrial relations lawyer. That experience helped her gain valuable insights into the often contentious goings-on inside the workplace. And so began her fascination with corporate culture. She reckons if employees love the place they work, then the benefits naturally flow onto the business's bottom line. Alison founded Workology Co. in 2017 to advise businesses on how to build a great culture. She's a self-confessed workplace culture nerd, she tells me, and makes no apologies about that. I ask her why that is. To be honest, I came up with calling myself a workplace culture nerd because I was looking for a way to describe myself that felt more fitting to me, more was actually me. And uh, someone that um, I admire professionally uh, calls herself a nerd in her field. And when I saw that, I went, that actually really, it just really resonated with me. It just really hit me. And I went, yep, that's what I am. And then I looked it up and found the definition of what a nerd is. And it's basically someone that's obsessed with or an expert on the topic. And I went, yeah, well, I am that too. The longer I've called myself it, the more I've realised that that's really describes it very well, because I am so passionate about workplace culture, um, embarrassingly so sometimes, because for example, I was actually on a date night with my husband a couple of weeks ago and we're sitting there and we've got the candle. It's still in ISO, so we're at home. We've got the candles. It's all, you know, the romantic music in the background. And all of a sudden I start talking something about workplace culture and I'm getting so excited and, and I've got tears in my eyes and it's all very dramatic. And then he's just looking at me and I go, oh, okay, yeah, it's probably not really a topic for, for a date. And those kind of instances remind me that yes I am very passionate about workplace culture and so I think it probably fits me to call myself a nerd. I love that. I think you're probably not just passionate about workplace culture but passionate about positive workplace culture. Yes that's absolutely right. Although I'm passionate about changing negative workplace culture into positive workplace culture. So, yes. Perfect. But you started your career as a lawyer and worked as a senior solicitor with a major commercial law firm in Perth. Do you have fond memories of those days? <laughs> That's a funny question. <laughs> That's a very funny question. And actually, I started as a family law lawyer in Tasmania. And um, I took over running a family law practice and there was 90 active files when I was still an intern or an apprentice, article clerk as we call them. And there was uh, no partners or senior solicitors in the firm doing family law. So 
those were challenging days and they were challenging <laughs> the first time I had to turn up to the family court in a wig and gown, um, which is really intimidating in itself, and then have to argue a case on my own that I've prepared while I'm still an article clerk. That was scary times. And family law is such an emotive area, so there was that as well. So then when we moved from Tasmania to Perth, and I was I did family law still for a while over there, in fact, I had worked in a women's clothing, uh, selling wedding dresses when we first got to Perth for a while because I wanted a break from law and family law. And I ended up selling a wedding dress to someone that became a client six months later. Um, so that was pretty funny when I asked her the intake questions and one of them is, when was your wedding date? And her response is, well, you ought to know. So that was uh, slightly awkward. And because family law is so emotive and I always really, um, I'm an empathetic person and so I struggled with that even before I had children. And so I wanted to change the area of law and industrial law is very similar to family law in that you're dealing with people and I have to deal with people. I'm not one of those. I've got a mate who's a lawyer who does not see a client all year. I mean, it's just all in the paperwork and that to me is is horror. I need to be dealing with people. So industrial law is similar to family. There's advocacy and you're dealing with people's issues. So it was a a good switch. So when I joined the firm, I, I wasn't in the commercial arm. I was in the industrial relations arm. And yes, there's some good things about those days. The good things are advocacy. I would always be nervous or full of adrenaline before I'd do it, but I am good on my feet and I did I did love the advocacy in whether it was the family court or commissions for industrial relations. I got to know the commissioners very well because I was doing unfair dismissals sort of almost daily running trials on that and there was one particular this is a fond memory one particular commissioner who was an ex-union official, and depending on whether you went to see him in the morning or the afternoon, you got a different version because he'd go out and have quite a few drinks during lunch. And um, there was one time, I mean, everybody knew, it was just, he was a relic from the 80s. And um, one particular time, um, I remember, and I was arguing, and he just interrupted, and he had one of those dry drawls, and he'd be like, Ms. Drew Forster, we all know you're not from Western Australia, but could you try saying Albany right? Because, and I still can't remember whether it's Albany or Albany, but I was saying it wrong and he was telling me off in the middle of a trial. So, so that was a fond memory. And also when I was uh, pregnant, I was having a lot of backache pregnant with my first baby and I'd told the the commissioner's associates and every time I'd turn up afterwards, even if I wasn't suffering from any any backache or whatever, they'd always just, oh, you know, sit down because you're supposed to stand up when you're addressing the court. But I was always allowed to just sit down and they'd make sure, are you feeling okay, Ms. Drew Forster? They'd check with me during the trial. It was hilarious. So that they were good memories. I learnt a lot during that time and really started to enjoy industrial relations or employee relations. So that was they were some good times. One of the challenges was there was two females in the IR team um, and it was interesting because we were the ones that were the two highest billers and yet we were the ones that would leave at, say, 5.15, 5.30 to go home to families. But the ones that were the favourites were the, were the boys and they were generally younger than us, boys, that would hang around and have drinks and chat with our manager. Even though they weren't billing as much as us, they were the favourites and treated as such because of that element. So mm. 
that was always one of the frustrations for me. Yeah. And you moved into industrial relations. Was that the main trigger for your interest in corporate culture? Uh, yes. And although it took a lot longer to get there than that, but from when I first went into it, I mean, I was helping, we had, we were a union law firm actually before they merged and then became a commercial firm. And um, all my clients were basically union members. There was a deal that they had that they'd pay a certain amount of their union membership that was set aside into a fund and then we'd act for them. So like I say, I was dealing with lots of unfair dismissals or instances of employees that had been treated poorly or said they'd been treated poorly. And so I started to see all this, um, all the ways that organisations can treat their employees um, and not in the best way. And that I saw more, more and more of that over the years as I moved into, when we came to Melbourne, I moved into working predominantly, for example, for employer associations. So I went to the other side and this time I'm helping managers when they've got to discipline someone or when they need to make them redundant or or if they have to terminate their employment or I was conducting bullying investigations or helping them with sexual harassment claims, all of that kind of stuff. And it's all the reactive, negative, or sometimes I call it the dark side. And so for years I was just dealing in this, for 20 years almost, dealing in this negative this is the toxic, dysfunctional culture. And there came a point where I went, I've had enough of being in the negative. What's the positive? Where's the light? I want some light in my life. So then I actively started learning more and more about what's the opposite. What is positive workplace culture? What does that look like? What's this thing called employee engagement, employee experience? Um, How does that benefit an organisation? How does that benefit the people that work in the organisation? And the more I learned, um, the more I went, yeah, this is, this brings together everything that I've ever done, including journalism studies when I did that and HR studies, it brings together everything and it's a way of trying to make a difference for the organisations and for the people that work in them. Yeah, I love that. I love the fact that you've been able to bring all those different elements together. And you've worked in various roles, workplace relations and HR, like you said, at several corporations since then. Are most workplaces pretty similar to each other? And is that a good or a bad thing? Yes, they are in the sense that Earlier this year, I released a white paper and the white paper was on what make up the six key ingredients of exceptional workplace culture. In answer to your question, the organisations are the same in that they either have those six ingredients or elements of it or they don't and they need to get them. So an example of that would be the classic scenario still happens where, and it's almost hard to believe that it does, but where People are appointed to the role of being a manager because of their technical competence and there's no consideration given to, is this person actually going to be a good leader? Or even if there is consideration given to that, when they're put into the role, they're not given any support in how to be a leader. We just assume that they're going to know how to be a leader. Leadership isn't a, a natural skill. For some people, it's more easy to do, but you actually have to learn how to be a leader um, and you need to be coached in how to be a leader. So if organisations don't either A, go through a proper process of choosing the right person or B, um, then supporting them when they put them into that role, then that person is not going to be a great leader and they're not going to be the best leader they can be. And that's a problem that's across all organisations. And some know that and so some do it appropriately and then it isn't a problem, but but it's a consistency. Yeah, right. What would you like to see changed in workplace culture? Okay, so obviously what I would like to see changed is I'd like to see organisations that really 
have a deliberate strategy that they want to have exceptional workplace culture. They need to understand that exceptional workplace culture is important. And partly that's because there are, I say that because there are still organisations where the leaders will go, why do we have to worry about how people feel or what they're thinking? And they'll say, and I hear people say this, we, we pay them, isn't that enough? And the answer is, well, no, it's not enough. It's not enough for the people, but it's also not enough if you want to be an organisation that not just survives, but actually thrives. And partly what I would like to see is organisations understand that, and I mean from the board down, it needs to start at the board, but also I would like to see them adopt what I would call a people-first approach, which is a way of having exceptional culture, and it is the things that I'm talking about. It is actually, first of all, having having the board level down say, yep, this is what we want to be. We want to have exceptional culture. We understand it's important and this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And then all of the elements of strategy and and the mission and the purpose and everything is all aligned. Um, And a key component of that is that we are actually adopting this people first approach where we are keeping our employees at the centre of what we're doing and we're listening to them. And we're understanding that the difference in our organisation is um, is our people. It's really interesting for me to listen to you because when we talk about culture, it's kind of like explaining air. People can't really understand what culture is. It's a vibe. It's a you want to go to work or you don't want to go to work. You know, it's positive or it's toxic, whatever. But when I hear you say the words people first, that tells me exactly what culture is about. And so I'm wondering whether if you were presenting to organisations, whether you presented as people first versus culture, whether they'd understand that? Do you think that they might? Yeah, that's that's a, a good point. And perhaps when I think about even giving you an illustration of the answer to your question too. So when I was interviewing people for the white paper, I interviewed a guy called Stephen Carter, who's who's the managing director and one of the owners of uh, Sharp and Carter. And they're a recruitment company and they've they increased their profit margin by some ridiculous amount, um, which which was, say, 54% over six years. It may have even been more. And they did that after they went from being a profit-first to a people-first organisation. And yet they didn't do that intending to make profit. They did it because the three partners wanted to have the kind of workplace that they would like to be at, you know, the, the kind that they wished that they'd started at. They wanted to have one of the best workplaces in Australia. They wanted to have a workplace where their employees felt valued, etc. And then they found as a result of having that people-first approach, the profits flowed. An example of that is they had an employer who started and he was in his um, probationary period. He was actually within, I think, his first month, let alone longer. And he unfortunately got cancer during this time, during the first month. So what they did was they could clearly have He's in a qualifying period of employment. He can be let go. There's no, you know, no implications for them if they do that. But they actually kept him on, and they supported him, and they kept paying him. So, thankfully, he he got through the the cancer treatment, and he was he came back to work. And of course, he's turned out to be one of the most productive employees that they've got because he feels valued. They've put him first, and that's a fantastic example of people first, and then how that flows into the success of the business because. In this case, it's actual dollars and cents. Yeah, does actually make sense. So as the Director of Workology, how do you help your clients, CEOs and senior leadership teams, get their cultures right? So there's lots of ways. And I think one of the first ways is that I'm hoping that they've accepted 
that they need to get their culture right because I think we've kind of talked about that already. If you're someone that doesn't get it, and I know there are leaders, CEOs who don't, and I can think of a few in particular, you just can't convince them. You can have all the conversations and you can bring it about dollars, you can bring it about people, you can bring it about all kinds of things, but if they don't get it, they won't get it, no matter what you say. So first of all, let's assume that you're talking to an organisation that does want to change. So then I think it's really good to actually measure what the culture is now. I don't think you can look to how you're going to change where you want to go unless you know where you are now. So doing a cultural audit, that's one of the ways that I help. And I either do that by a combination of face-to-face interviews, online focus groups. And then once you've worked out where it is now, then you can work with a senior leadership group to devise a strategy about where you want to get to. And then there's many different ways that you can do that along the way, which include, it can be leadership development, like I mentioned earlier, because that's always a crucial element. Um, And that might be coaching for the leaders. It's inevitably going to be some kind of training, um, some workshops, it could be running focus groups to check in with how how changes that you've implemented along the way, how they're going, are they what's needed? So there's some of the ways uh, that I work with organisations to help them improve their culture. And do you have any examples of great workplaces? Yes, um, I do. Somewhere like Atlassian is always at the top of, you know, lists of great places to work, but I haven't personally dealt with them, um, so I can't actually say for sure if they are a great example. What's a great example of somewhere that you know about from a great workplace culture? So one place that I've worked with in the past, in fact, last year, was PEXA. So PEXA is an organisation that Property Exchange Australia, which basically has replaced the old days where certainly, you know, as young lawyers, we when a conveyance would happen, you'd turn up to the bank and everybody, everybody's lawyers or representatives there and would all exchange paperwork, blah, blah, blah. PEXA does that all now online. And from the minute I worked into that organisation, it almost is like you said before, Emma, the vibe, the marbo. There's just a vibe about that place and the energy you can actually feel it and almost see it coming off the walls and there's lots of ways that they do that that they keep that culture alive they do hack days for example and I was involved in one of their hack days or it was actually a day and a half and and the way they do that is they have people nominate present to the rest of their teammates ideas that they've got for the hack day. They then vote on which ones are going to be discussed on the hack day and then you go into a team that you're interested in. And I was working with a team that were looking at um, a corporate and social responsibility issue, homelessness. And we spend a day and a half where they've stepped away from their jobs and you just brainstorm and you just be as creative as you possibly can. And then at the end, they offer up here's our idea, this is what we've come up with and everybody votes on the best and then there's prizes. And sometimes some of their best products or ideas come out of these hack days. And honestly, it's amazing. The energy that's created through these hack days as well as the ideas is just inspiring. And what they were prepared to do by way of corporate and social responsibility was also inspiring. And there's so many different things that they do. They've introduced sort of like a parental scheme, uh, you know, assisting parents with children's care during school holidays, etc. Just little things, but big things as well. Yeah, so many ways. They're a great example. And I'm aware that since uh, COVID hit, that they're still 
making efforts to maintain their culture. There's coffees with the CEO. They're having virtual wines, uh, you know, virtual coffees, all kinds of different ways that they're virtual trivias and quizzes to keep the culture alive. So that's a great example that I'm personally aware of. And also, if I've got time, another one that's a completely different left of field one, and also because we're because we're in Melbourne and footy's just started back, <laughs> so the Richmond Football Club is actually a really good example as well. Now, I'm a Carlton supporter, and so it actually physically pains me to say this, but they are a great example because. You know, they struggled to get past the first round of the finals for so many years, despite being, you know, a team that was either in form or predicted to go far. And they made a conscious decision to change their culture. And they changed it from the board level down. And, you know, the the president and CEO made these decisions about the kind of culture that they wanted to have on and off the field. And it has translated into now two premierships in three years. And they're a great example because one of the things that they did was allowing their coach and then the players to be authentic. And one of my, my one of the things I'm most passionate about with workplace culture is having authentic leaders. That's what I hope that when you ask me about what do I want to see change in, in terms of culture in organisations, allowing leaders to be authentic is one of the things that really I'm most passionate about. And I feel that we're seeing a bit of a start of a movement of that and I'm hoping that that keeps going and and the way Richmond have done that is is a great example as I say as much as it pains me to say it. (laughs) Never in a million years did I think we would be talking footy on this podcast I can tell you that right now and my husband who used to play for Richmond would be very happy to hear that. Um, And you didn't even pay me to say it him. (laughs) I know right. Uh, You talk about COVID and we've talked about some things that people have done to keep the culture happening throughout COVID. Do you think COVID has changed the culture of many companies and or will they resort to the ways that things were before? Well, obviously, there's been the changes with um, so many people working remotely now. I mean, it's just has to be a difference. And I think that what that means is that companies have had to work harder to maintain connection. And some of the examples I've gave before about ways to maintain connection are our examples of what good organisations have been doing. And companies that have been really making an effort to listen more to their employees and actually listen to them more as humans. It sounds a bit crazy, really, and to someone like myself and you as well, we get that. We inherently get that. We're interested in people as people, but not not everyone is. But I think that that's been one of the changes to come out of COVID and working remotely because everybody's seeing more about their co-workers' lives. We're, we're literally seeing more about their lives, sometimes more than we want to. And certainly I'm seeing a lot of leaders and thought leaders in, in organisational development, leaders like... Um, my heroes like Patrick Lencioni um, who's talking about this is what we what are the three key things we need from our leaders at the moment it's being human and that expression's coming up all the time be human be human yes I think that that leaders that embrace that and are more human I think that what they will see is that their employees will reward them by their loyalty because of the way they're treating their employees during this time yeah I think also the opposite is true I think that employees who have had a great experience throughout COVID and have been treated well, Mm -hmm. but also 
those people that have been treated poorly. I think it's easy to be a good leader in good times. I think it's harder to be a good leader in bad times. And I think that lots of organisations will lose employees once we go back to whatever the new normal is. And I think if you've worked on your culture actively while people have been remote working, then I think you've got a much larger chance of holding on to your employees. Yeah. Thank you, Ali. It's been fascinating. How do people contact you? Oh, well, the details are all on my website, which is workologyco.com.au. I'm also on LinkedIn under my name or workologyco. And yeah, message me or, or phone me. My phone number's there too. Perfect. Thank you. That's Alison Drew Forster, Director of Workology Co. That's it for this episode of Tea with the Queen. If you love this episode, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. And you're very welcome to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word. You can contact me directly at my website at emmamcqueen.com.au. It's also where you'll find my book, Go Getter. Speak to you soon. Speak to you soon.